How is everybody doing? Duncan Fletcher here, uh, back for another PADS podcast. I'm along with my co-pilot here, Stephanie Thorburn. Stephanie, how are you doing today? Doing well. Excited for another PADS podcast. PADS podcast. You can't beat them, can you? Here we go. Well, we're super fortunate to have all the way from London. We've got Steve and Alison Johnson from the Wellbeing Science Institute. Now, I know you guys are originally from Australia. Now you find yourselves in London. How are you guys managing the lack of vitamin D? It's probably the biggest challenge at the moment, actually. And uh, not used to seeing ourselves with pasty faces. So, uh, it's been good, Seth. Uh, the weather's been kind. Cross fingers. Hope it continues. You never leave Australia for the UK. Yeah. I can only imagine not being down under in the summer. It's got to not be a ton of fun when you're in London in the dreary fog and rain. But with that, why don't we jump into, I guess, the first question right out of the gate. Uh, obviously, we've been fortunate enough to know each other for, you know, it seems like a long time now in terms of having crossed paths on multiple occasions. Maybe talk a little bit about the Wellbeing Science Institute, uh, what it is and how it started. Well, I guess it started a long time before the Wellbeing Science Institute because um, my original training was sports psychology. And so it was kind of in that space of um, you know, education and talking to people about um, how they could improve professional elite athletes' performance, their overall um well-being and then transitions out of and they were the kind of the big three headlines although well-being probably wasn't as uh, as popular um, back in those days um, but it was also very frustrating back in those days because at the time uh, sports psychology wasn't mainstream uh, it was considered something a little bit of a, a bolt-on and the way in which people viewed it was you know a nice to have but didn't really add a lot of value but over the years that the idea of what um, high performance meant, elite systems and processes meant, uh, meant that people changed their perspective on sports psychology. And I think that helped with this uh, idea that athlete development um, had multiple dimensions to it. And so then uh, over the last 10 years in particular, um, there's been a focus initially, there's a focus on you know, dual careers for athletes. Uh, and But we always believe that dual careers were necessary, but insufficient for athlete development. So you know, about 10 years ago, um, I had some discussions with uh, the senior leadership team at the NRL in Australia um, and talked to them about um, developing a program specifically for the people who work with elite athletes because around that time, they had just, uh, for the first time, started employing individuals to work with uh, their players. So the first stage of that was developing a strategy for the NRL and then developing a training program to uplift the capability of people who would be in those roles working closely. And it was largely out of doing that work that um, the Wellbeing Science Institute was formed. We wanted to get the course uh, that we developed for the NRL upgraded so it was a national qualification. And as a result of doing that, that was almost like the birthplace of the Wellbeing Science Institute. Well, that's super interesting. So out of curiosity, as you guys began this adventure, you know, as you said, starting with the National Rugby League and getting your hands around the challenges that were being faced by elite and professional athletes, what are some of the things that struck you as you began this adventure and trying to understand how to serve the needs of uh, both the organization and the athletes? What were some of the things that stood out to you as you guys sort of ventured on your process and trying to bring that into the sporting world? 
I think the first and most obvious problem was that, and, and it's a problem that remains today, is very few organisations actually have a strategy. And so our first job, and it seemed like a natural job for us in thinking because both Alice and myself had come, uh, I transitioned into corporate and Alice had worked in corporate environments mainly around leadership. So for us, the idea of starting with strategy just made sense. And for a lot of organizations, they start doing athlete development work or they start doing well-being work without a strategy. And that means you have a loosely related set of initiatives as opposed to something that's coherent and something that becomes reinforcing at all levels of your organization. So that was probably the most obvious thing. And then the challenge of persuading people that this was the future. And it was a future that we were looking 10 years out and saying, look, this is where it's going to be in 10 years' time. And at the time, I know there were people who were fairly sceptical about that. And I was literally, and Alison was literally promising people, look, this is going to be the future and this will be enormously uh, helpful for your career. And, I, you know, you could see people saying, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. You're just saying that because you've got a vested interest to say it. But as it turned out, um, it has be, become you know, the future and well-being is everywhere. And I think COVID just fast-tracked that whole engagement, interest and the importance, underscore the importance. I guess one of the questions I want to ask you is you guys came into it. What do you think the real hesitancy was from the sports side of things? Well, I think some of the things that Steve just spoke about, I think there was also a lack of precedence for it. It was new. So there wasn't something you could point to and say, here's a model of how it's worked. And one of the observations I would have a sport is that they really like to look around their peer network and say, show us somewhere else where it's worked. And so although the research was there, the evidence was there, it was waiting for that first code, like the NRL, to take that leap forward and say, we believe you are right, that this will be, the evidence tells us that this evidence will work in sport and that the demand is here. I think they underestimated the athlete activism and the athlete voice that would come through, looking for this, wanting this, um, and underestimated athletes generally, I think. And having not necessarily come from working inside sport as much as, say, Steve had, I was continually amazed by how much athletes were underestimated, their appetite for learning, their interest in learning, and their interest in well-being. So I think those things influenced it. No one had done it yet. They were waiting for who will do it first and there wasn't that experience. What about you, Steve? We were advocating a particular type of approach which was much more holistic. And if you think back 10 years ago, just talk to people about holistic well-being and elite and professional sport, was that wasn't a conversation going on in those days. And so people were saying, oh, look, we can see the career piece, we can potentially see the finance piece. But the rest of it, you know, why would athletes be interested in, you know, relationships or why would athletes be interested in spirituality or culture? Well, athletes might be interested, but who else, you know? And then, you know, the whole mental health space was really driven by an agenda around stigma reduction and, you know, the conversation around mental ill health as opposed to doing something more holistic and proactive. So. Yeah, I think that that also held it back, that conversation about mental health at the time. People were reluctant to do the wrong thing and so therefore they often didn't want to do anything in case it was the wrong thing. 
And so that was quite an unhelpful model, the mental ill health model, which really I think stopped people moving ahead and feeling like they, they may have the ability to learn the skills for flourishing, the ability to learn about well-being. I think there was also an overestimation of the expertise that lay with clinical professionals, psychiatry and psychology and an over-reliance on that without understanding the knowledge and skills that were available to many out in the world. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating point too. Like when, when most people, if you think back 5, 10, 15 years, the, the conversation was always, like you said, always about mental ill health. It was never about, you know, let's put people in a position to succeed uh, from a well-being perspective. I guess one of the things that always jumps to my mind is you guys were having these conversations. Did the topic of performance come up and was your original conversation seen as something that could potentially detract from performance? And obviously now as you're deeper into this process, into sport, I think very clearly you can articulate that a lot of the work that, you know, athlete development people do, the people that are focused on athlete well-being, it actually is a performance enhancer. So I was curious if you can kind of flash back to that 10 years ago and that dialogue around performance and how you've seen that change over the last, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, I think it'd be really fascinating to get your perspective on that. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, we, we've argued for a long time that um, well-being is a performance enabler. And I think people are now really starting to get to grips with that. We've talked a lot, particularly over the last five years, about helping athletes and coaches and officials, you know, referees being uh, and umpires particularly, helping them managing their allostatic load, which is basically your entire body system for efficiency. But we, we don't set it up as this will equal performance because there are too many other variables that can influence performance. Sometimes there's a whole lot of luck, whether you, you know, have a, a win or a loss. Sometimes it's, you know, one, it comes down to one play in a final moment. But what we say is we'll, we'll deliver athletes to the door of performance. And then if all the other conditions are right, you give yourself the best chance of success. But because I also have done work across the performance side in terms of mental skills and culture and culture building, what I've learned from you know, the combination of these two aspects of work is if you have a team who understands an integrated performance model and has a strategy for putting that a model into play and your athletes understand it and are also willing to engage with it, then everybody understands not only their role, but their role in relation to other people's roles. And for me, that's really the starting point for performance. Um, but often people don't really consciously think a lot about their high-performance model, just as they don't often think about what's their model for, for well-being. And so when those two uh, pieces come together and you get a coach who really values people as well as performance, then I think you've got the recipe for you know, doing great things. So I have a few questions. You know, as you talked about starting this initiative the last 10 years, I'm just wondering, you know, it's probably been such a successful journey for you personally and professionally to see the evolution across the different organizations. What were some of those pivotal moments where you realized, okay, they're starting to understand it. The buy-in is there. We're going to be able to move the needle. We, we often use this term, you need your first crazy dancer. And the analogy being, you know, you're at a concert or you're on the dance floor and you need that first person to get up and start dancing. Well, there's a guy from Australia called Paul Heptonstall, who I know you both know, and he was that first crazy dancer. He really backed uh, the idea and supported it and continues to support the idea. But it was, it was Paul's vision and leadership about what this could be and what a difference it could make that really 
kept the momentum because it, doing this work, it's really culture change work. Uh, and culture change work, as you know, uh, it takes time. And you get your early adopters and you, you get your sort of, you know, um, your passive people in the middle who could go either way. And then you get your resistors. So you've got to be prepared for that. So that was certainly one, one piece where, you know, we went, okay, well, Paul is committed and that's going to make a big difference. And then slowly what we started to observe was um, people who would come and do the program would see benefits on three levels, you know, helping them be able to understand what a good strategy for well-being, athlete well-being looked like. Secondly, to give them the tools for jobs so they actually could do their job more effectively and build their confidence. But the other thing was that we started hearing people say a lot how much they got out of the program personally. And that was both intrinsically rewarding, but it also told us that, hey, there was more benefits here than just organizational benefits. Yeah, I think there are a couple of pivotal moments. And then probably another one was when we got a call from Loughborough University, which is the number one university for sport in the UK and has a worldwide reputation, called us up and said, would you be interested in coming and running the program in the UK? So they were probably two standouts. Fantastic. Just real quick, Steph, I do need to chime in and just basically say that if you were to pick a crazy dancer, Paul Heppenstall would be <laughs> the crazy, the crazy dancer, dancer that you want, to, well, you want to pick. So I did want to acknowledge that. So sorry, Steph, go ahead. Yeah, I was just thinking about your recent trip to the U.S. in, in May and wondering, you know, were there any golden nuggets of information that you were able to kind of pull out of the different visits to the leagues, as well as the overall summit that you're able to now implement, as well as some things that might have been shocking. Oh, I didn't realize, you know, in the US things were run this way. Just wondering kind of your overall experience and how you were able to extract some of that information and, and take it away and implement it now. It's interesting because um, we had some people, uh, you know, as you know, people from the US have been coming to Australia and Australians have been going to the US largely as a result of um, PADS. My early observations was, you know, Australia was doing pretty well in terms of what they were doing and the direction it was going. Having visited again um, just this year, the US has a real commercial view of the world of athlete wellbeing and development. And so that lends itself to potential partnerships and sponsorships and opportunities for collaboration that potentially don't other people might not see. It's something we've been advocating for for a long period of time about how these programs can be not only self-funding, but also it can be revenue generating. And so that was something that certainly I took away from, from the recent visit. And just getting to see how different organizations approach, you know, the difference between how the NFL, Major League Soccer, Baseball, NBA, and what level of engagement and how that engagement happens. I think probably not as much opportunity for engagement uh, was my observation. There are significant opportunities, I think, for the US to have a look at some other places about how things are done. Yeah. I think the, the other thing I would add to that that I really took away as a reminder, which often it is when you get the chance to, to go to some of those global conferences, and the reminder for me was that context matters. So understanding the, the business of sport and the different operating models ownership models, regulatory frameworks, where the funding comes from is critical before you embark on working with any code or team or organization. And so the more you learn about 
different sports, different codes, different jurisdictions, the more it just reminds you that you must go to where that code is starting from. You must understand, you know, para sport versus able-bodied sport, owners who, you know, and billionaires who own a club versus a, a government funded. There's so many differences, although the philosophy and model of wellbeing works, the context is critical. And so when you hear wellbeing or athlete development professionals speaking, they're speaking from their experience of that context. And so therefore, where they start the strategy, the process, the tools must be fit for purpose. Yeah. Um, and I think that was a great reminder because one of the, the really incredibly in, incredible things about sport is how interesting it is. It's not just the diversity of sport and people, but the diversity of business models is incredibly interesting. So that was a good reminder for me. Start with context. Don't assume, don't cookie cut, don't just pull something off the shelf. I definitely think that's the right way to do it because, again, if you're trying to put a square peg in a round hole, so to speak, it's usually not going to work well. So that's, uh, I think that's great advice is understand your context. Out of curiosity, obviously, you guys have, have been around the sports space now for some time. And again, as you, were, as you were saying, you were kind of at the forefront of some of this thinking, particularly around you know, mental wellness. Where do you see the, the field, of particularly around player well-being and athlete development? How do you see that progressing now that we've seen this pretty dramatic shift in approach I would argue globally, where do you see it continuing to migrate to? And, and what do you think it looks like in another 10 years? One thing's for sure that um, people are going to get clearer on what a good strategy looks like. I think they're going to invest, invest more heavily in well-being. So I think we're just seeing the start of that. And just like the sports science function, we've seen enormous investment over the past 20 years, really. I think we'll now see a greater investment in learning right across the organization because I don't think that that's something that sport has really embraced yet. I really see learning as the future and that's learning at all levels of the organization, which includes athletes. I think we've seen the rise of athlete activism. We've seen the rise of athlete uh, entrepreneurship. We've seen the rise of uh, athletes' interest and participation in well-being. And I, I think that will just continue to the point where What's happening at the, uh, the elite echelons of the elite is that people are taking care of it themselves. Now, I think it'll be a, a strategic differentiator of talent if you say to people, we've got the best well-being program or athlete development program in the code, in the league, and that'll attract athletes that'll come because they'll reach their potential as an athlete and as a person. So I think that's the future. In order to do that, I think the future lies in customization. So how do you customize to the individual and also to that position? So you know, what are the unique features that of this individual within this team, within this context, but also within this position? And how can we best support this person? And the other thing that I think is going to be massive over the next um, 10 years before I hand over Alison for her thoughts um, is mental health, but mental health in a very different way to what we've seen in the past. Yeah, I think uh, definitely agree on the mental health one. And I think the other one, if we look at 10 years, what will be the norm will be coaches, managers who know the role that wellbeing plays in how they coach and create an environment. Whereas right now, I think that the coach who puts people first and talks about the wellbeing and knowing their athletes as people first is the outlier or the exception to the rule. I think this generational change that we'll start to see coming through, that'll be the norm. And they'll talk back in the old days, you know, that's how the coaching approach used to be. So I think that'll be 
a, a huge shift as well. And the athletes now who are, are growing up through these systems, who are the beneficiaries of more professional systems of well-being, will lead that forward into different careers inside sport and outside sport because it will become, well, that's just how things are done. Um, that is what well-being looks like. So if I take it from here to outside of sport or a coaching role or leading in sports management, um, there are a couple of the other things that I believe will be the norm in yeah. 10 years' time. That actually ties into my question with the, the well-being course. You know, who's currently the participants or their coaches, well-being managers? Do you think that is going to shift over time that perhaps more athletes will enroll in the course and kind of some of the biggest takeaways that you've seen so far, just wondering if you can share that and then how you think the course will evolve over time based on what you just shared, that evolution of well-being in the next 10 years. Yeah, I think clearly uh, one of the big big strategic changes uh, that we see on the landscape is the rise of women's sports. So that's going to significantly impact how well-being is perceived and the content and the context of well-being in the future. I think uh, already we've started to see a significant increase in athletes uh, doing our programs. In fact, we've run customised programs for athletes in Australia because of such, there's such strong interest. But we also see a, a, a variety of people working in sporting organisations. We've had many coaches do our program, physiotherapists, sports scientists, psychologists, because they're interested in the context of elite sport and learning about well-being in elite sport context. And so, and that's the difference. We, we've always been advocates for not doing vanilla. So everything that's in our program is about elite or professional sport. And so it's research-driven. It's informed by you know, our stakeholders and actually informed by clinical practice because you know, for the last 10 years, I've been working a lot in clinical practice with elite athletes and working out what doesn't work and so how to prevent those problems from happening. So that's been really helpful. And then looking you know, at the wider you know, internationally what's going on and what are the trends that other people are seeing as well. So to kind of flip this on its head just a, a bit, and again, everything that we've talked about reviewing this through this prism is a, it's, it's, a, it's a huge positive, and I believe it is. What are maybe some of the downsides of this acknowledgement of the importance of mental health and well-being? I'm just curious, do you, do you sort of step back and go, you know, where potentially can this go off the rails? How could this potentially be misappropriated to, to harm an athlete or to, to negatively impact an organization? Like, what are some of the trap doors as organizations and teams and people who are working with high-performing athletes begin this process of exploring, right? How do I actually address this? What are some of the trap doors, issues, you know, sort of sticky areas that you think that teams and athletes can find themselves trying to navigate their way out of if they don't handle it properly with an appropriate strategic approach? I think there's the performance and well-being dilemma. You know, where are you sitting? Are you in the performance camp or are you in the well-being camp? And you know, there's a, a thin line there. And the, so the athlete's privacy, confidentiality, information, data, all those things are, are really key. So Anybody who's working in the role needs to understand that they're a trusted person and there's a code of ethics and, and values that they need to abide by to protect not only the athlete's interests, but the provider themselves and the organization's interests. I think that's definitely one key piece. I think the other one is that athlete development, athlete wellbeing, it's not a panacea. You need a team, you need a system, you need a culture, you need a strategy. And unless all those pieces are working 
in alignment with each other, you know, it's not going to make a huge difference. But it is uh, an important piece, but it's not the biggest piece and it's not the only piece. So recognizing one's limitations and also recognizing one's contribution. It's not everything. Uh, it, won't, uh, it won't replace uh, talented athletes. It won't replace not doing the work. It won't replace uh, team cohesion and, you know, and, and teamwork and, and, and won't replace innovation. So it, it is in its place. It's an important contribution, but it's, um, its contribution needs to be recognized for what it is. Yeah, and I think there's um, some traps for new players, as, as we like to say. A couple of the other traps is don't just change the, uh, the name in the title and think your job is done. That isn't enough. You actually have to do the substance of the work underneath it. I think the other trap that, you know, really have to, to think carefully through is that desire to just, can we just get some stuff done and let's show how much we're doing. So, uh, you know, a checklist of things and a calendar of activities and we're done. We've done the well-being stuff now. So that desire to move quickly and sometimes without doing your homework, like mm. it takes some work. You got to do some work first. And then the third one I would think is just being a trap that I have seen some organizations go down is that desire to make something highly engaging and entertaining um, means that you sometimes go for a quick sugar hit without thinking about the process of change at the individual team or code level. Entertaining is good for awareness raising or good as a keynote at a conference, but if you're thinking about genuine change, don't get sucked into the sugar hit of a, a one hit wonder, something quick that might be entertaining and engaging. Not only can it be detrimental to the organization, but in cases where you're asking somebody to share a lived experience over and over again, which might be on the mental ill health side, that can be damaging to them as well to relive that over and over again. So I think there's some mini traps along the way, not having a strategy, not having a process, not having a system, but also some of those little micro traps I've seen along the way that can set you back. And I think making assumptions is probably another one, which is doing to or doing for rather than asking people, what are you interested in doing and how can we support you along that journey? And that whole idea of self-determination, I think is a mm -hmm. fundamental pillar of the way we would encourage people to work. I have one additional question with regards to the athlete development specialists. The role of athlete development specialists and coaches has really evolved over the last 10 to 15 years with that well-being aspect, especially during COVID as we would have some of our pads, regional calls with individuals at the leagues and, and different teams. The demands that were placed upon them were highly intensified, especially during COVID. So what resources and tools Obviously, the summit is a great opportunity to come together and, and share, but how can these individuals continue to educate themselves so they are well prepared to address the, the needs and meet the needs of the athletes? Yeah, I think spot on, Stephanie. I think we've all seen the, the challenging environments that these professionals who are really incredibly well-intentioned and are passionate about what they do and so sometimes are overreaching and overstretching and that can take its toll on their own well-being. I think there's a couple of things that we found in our own experience of participants on the course that they take out of the, the course itself. So when they're doing the course, thinking about these are the tools and processes that I'm using with athletes, you know, heal or heal thyself. So applying some of those tools and resources that you're advocating for and using with athletes and coaches, but putting it into place and practice for yourself. So we, when we look at creating wellbeing plans, we ask our 
wellbeing professionals to build a wellbeing plan for yourself first and foremost, because that's incredibly buffering. So all the knowledge and skills you have about the things you'd be sharing with an athlete do to yourself. The other thing that is incredibly buffering for athlete development professionals, we find, because sometimes it's a lonely role when you're out there on the front line, often one working by themselves, is that it can be lonely and not having that peer support network can be also quite detrimental to your well-being. So we find it really buffering that when people come either through a community like PADS or through our course and our course alumni, those peer relationships stick together. And that's one of the things that we recommend for people is having peers who are doing similar types of jobs for you in different sports, in the same sports, is helpful to help you take care of yourself. So you're able to share with them some of the challenges you're having, but they can also just sometimes through the sheer understanding of having that social relationship support you as well. But we certainly, you know, through different challenging times, I think Steve can probably talk about some of the work he did with LMA during COVID in particular, where we developed some self-care tools for managers during Premier League managers. So Steve, if you want to talk a little bit about some of those self-care models that you've used and tools you've used there as well. Yeah. During COVID, we did some work for the League Managers Association of of football in the UK. And one of the things we focused heavily on was the self-care for managers because during COVID, obviously, with a lot of lockdowns and and shutdowns, and they were under enormous amounts of pressure to take care of not just their focal point, not just for their players, but for the whole club. And it was an enormous amount of pressure and most coaches weren't prepared for that. So we we developed this you know, multi-stage program for them, which was around self-care, around relationship building, around um, taking care of your direct reports, and even thinking about you know how to um, be the spokesperson for the enterprise, you know, for the for the club, and then also thinking about you know while all this is going on, managers can still get sacked. So thinking about what is what's your career health look like? How are you preparing for that? And that was a really it was really well received by the managers, and it was something that. We're really happy to do because it was an extremely challenging time for them. So I think, you know, again, coach well-being, manager well-being and official well-being, I think is another area that's really neglected. And it's something that I think will come to the fore in the next you know, five years in particular. Those pesky officials, they're under no pressure at all, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it, and yeah, no players, pressure for those guys. players and coaches really need to uh, think about their, their consequences of their words because. You know, the officials and the referees and the umpires, they, they, they're an integral and important part of sport and we need to care for them as much as we do around our athletes and our coaches and our coaching staff. Absolutely. Well, I think that's probably a great place to put a bow on it. I think the conversation has been really quite illuminating. You start thinking about the importance of context, understanding your environment, having a strategy. And then again, your last point here around the importance of self-care really sort of stands out. And that, you know, if you're the one that's sort of constantly on the front lines and you're not looking after yourself sooner or later, there's going to be a, there'll be a price to pay if you're not looking after yourself. So I think that's a really good point for all of the professionals who are listening to this podcast is, is to be, be cognizant of where you are in that process. So with that, with a, an immense amount of thanks, so again, Steve, Allison from the Wellbeing Science Institute, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to connect from London. And hopefully you guys get back down to the sun soon in Sydney. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks Stephanie. Thanks, Stephanie.